Well, hello, Radical Road. Matt and Jess here. We have a great episode for today. We're cruising the road and it's time to shut down and we end up in a small town in Wyoming. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Truth Social, found at The Radical Road, Twitter at The Radical Road One. Visit our website on theradicalroad.com and email us your questions or comments to Matt and Jess at ontheradicalroad.com. So we're going through this small town and I don't know, something was just different about this place when we got here. Uh, it was very quiet. Everybody's lawns are so manicured and things just seem not perfect, but just like people care about the town. Like people mm-hmm. legitimately care about town and, you know, the little signs are up for the elections coming up and all this stuff, but yeah. And then we're, and then we were walking around and, um, we see an old, well, I think it might still be used a rodeo area. Um, and I said, Matt, what is the name of this town? I was just really discerning as we were walking around, there was this feeling in this town and it's just, it feels so, um, it takes you back in the day. It's just a small town that takes you back in the day. It has this just real traditional, um, peaceful presence. Yeah. You could feel the history on the town. As soon as you came in here, you'd like something happened here. So we got really interested in like what was going on. So of course, Jess, the first person we run into, we're going to just go up to her and go, Hey, tell us about the town. Like what goes on here? So, I know, I'm, I'm so social. And so I see her and I'm like, I'm going to go get the skinny. I'm going to go get the skinny on this small town. And Matt's like, Oh boy, here we go. And, um, I walked up to her and I said, so, um, I'm not sure if you're from here or not. She says, well, I've lived here 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I said, so tell us the history of Cokeville. We'd like to know the history of Cokeville, Wyoming. And she's like, well. Well, it was, it started like an old ranching town, right? Where there's sheep sheep. sheep herders and stuff. And it kind of, you know, there's some other things in the area that we found out that, you know, people go and work. Cause I'm like, what do people do for jobs here? It's like literally in the, in the middle of nowhere. Ranchers and teachers. And then some people are driving 80 miles to work at Exxon. Yeah. She told us, you need to go down the street. And you need to speak to Janelle. And I said, okay, I don't know who this woman is, but I need to meet her apparently. So now we're sitting in Janelle and Sharon's living room. (laughs) And we have them on our show today. And we're just going to dig into the history of this town a little bit. And there's there was a big event that happened in this town. In 1987. 1986. 1986. And uh, yeah, yeah, we just want to get into it and hear the history of this town because it's such a fascinating story. Yeah, we heard the story from um, the gal we met that we spoke to, but she said, you have to go down and you have to hear this story firsthand. And I looked at Matt and I said, we have to get this on an episode. This is an incredible story. So... So welcome, you two. Welcome, <laughs> Janelle and Sharon. We feel completely honored to be sitting in your living room right now. Love so having cool. you here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
So, Sharon, you're actually from this town. I was born on a ranch a couple of miles from here. And so, like, your whole life you've been here? Except for military and and missions for my church. So you actually mentioned a a couple of your missions. We were kind of chatting ahead of time. Where where did you go for that? And and for those that aren't listening, what church is that that you're— This would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly called— the Mormon Church. Yeah. Yeah. So Cokeville is a Latter-day Saint-based um, town, correct? Yeah. Yes. We kind of got the skinny on that. Um, we were told that most everybody in the town goes to the church, probably. Is that true? Well, if you see the sign on the highway, it says Cokeville, population 535 people. Uh-huh. But uh, on on Sundays, when we have people going to church, we have two wards. And one of those wards of people has about 400 and the other about 375. Oh, wow. In spite of a small. So we bring in from a maybe 25 mile or 20 mile radius mm-hmm. people into Cokeville for its school and community activities and religious activities. Wow. That's amazing. So you're a tight community. What's that? You're a tight community, aren't you? You know everyone? No, we have a lot of people moving in now. A lot of people, uh, really, people have gone, and history has changed. At one time, Cokeville was considered uh, as a place to be the capital of Wyoming. Bonneville, really? uh, Captain Bonneville, uh, discovered the place when he came through the, here with one of his exploring groups, and they found five hundred Indian lodges here in Cokeville. It has a, a distinct geography and a, a very interesting and beautiful place to live. Yeah, it's yes. amazing. Tell us the story about your father. My father came from a religious family, and at the age of about 20, he went to Minnesota, where he served as a missionary for a couple of years. And when he came back, the church, uh, the, the number of LDS people in Cokeville was very small, maybe 50 people. And uh, today it dominates uh, the community here. The Catholic Church has died. The Presbyterian Church has died. And uh, if it weren't for the work of one lady, the Episcopal Church would die, have, have died in Cokeville. But the, the Latter-day Saint uh, people have thrived here mm-hmm. and uh, it's grown and prospered. And uh, we get along well with everyone in town. Have some wonderful people. And did you say, Sharon, your father was the first bishop here? Yes. At the age of about 23, uh, we hadn't, didn't have any local leadership. We had missionaries come in from Idaho that they had to come over with teams of horses or ride on the railroad. And they would come over and supervise the activities of the church. But when my father came back, the church decided that uh, he was capable of being a leader here in Cokeville, and he became the first bishop in Cokeville. Wow. And he was a bishop here for 23 years. And later on, he became the stake president over uh, about 13 different wards. He was a supervising elder and uh, the president of that stake. Wow. And then he became a mission president 
back down in uh, in um, Nebraska, and Las he Vegas. served as a mission president there for three years. Mm-hmm. So he, our, our background is at least my background has been very closely associated with the church and yeah. as a missionary. And you were a rancher here as well, Sharon. Were you a rancher? Yes, yes. I was born on a ranch back in, gosh, 1933, before the Industrial Revolution. (laughs) And at that time, the ranches were big business in Cokeville. One ranch here had 80 people on this payroll, and they had about 30 30 herds of sheep that they managed, as well as cattle and horses and other things. At one time, we had 13 millionaires in Cokeville, when things were very prosperous with the sheep business, and wool and cotton were the only uh, remnant-producing products uh, that they had in those times. Man, you know everything about this town. I have a good deal. Know a good deal about it. <laughs> it's history. Yeah, for sure. I could tell. The railroad th- came through here and. About 1980, and it was a big boost to our community. We had about 20 families that were uh, were had work-related jobs to the railroad. Mm-hmm. We had a big depot here, and all of the trains uh, stopped, and we shipped thousands and tens of thousands of livestock back east to Chicago and other places back there in the fall when the when the Baby calves matured, and when the lambs matured, they went back there to those markets. Wow. And you also were a hunting guide. I was for 50 years. When the Industrial Revolution went on, before that, all the work was done with horses. Mm-hmm. I figure that between um, driving team and riding horses, I've covered 60,000 miles. Wow. Because of those changes that have occurred. That's incredible. Amazing. Wow. So now you're not from here, though, are you? I'm I'm from a, a small community 30 miles away. So. Yeah, it's uh, Montpelier. Am I saying that right? So pretty close, though. So you grew up here, but you told us earlier you actually had a little stint from our home state of Iowa, right? Tell us about that. Tell us how you got to Ames. Tell us the story behind that. Okay. I, I had determined to get through BYU in three years, and so I went straight through. And when I got through, I found out my mother had applied for an assistantship for me at Ames, <laughs> Iowa, which I received. And about two weeks after I graduated from BYU, my mother put me on a train by myself and sent me to Iowa. <laughs> and a couple that uh, that we knew picked me up and dropped me off in an apartment and there was nobody there. And I waited and waited for a roommate and she didn't come. And so I crawled through a window and uh, took all my stuff and settled in. And eventually she came and I spent two years at Iowa State getting a degree in food technology. And Wow. Uh, it's quite made story. a lot of friends. Did you enjoy Iowa? I I enjoyed Iowa. 
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful state. It, it, really it can is. have some violent weather. My transportation <laughs> was a bicycle. And, oh boy. And in a, the winter. <laughs> in the winter. And uh, mostly we wore dresses. And so I tied uh, some strings on my coat so I could tie it together so I could ride it kind of like the Wicked Witch in uh, Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, w- one day I remember the weather was so violent that I, and I was on my bicycle and I was pushing forward with about the same momentum that the wind was pushing backwards. <laughs> but that I, is I finally made it home. And uh, yeah, just as a big limb blew off the tree in our front yard, and it was pretty scary weather <laughs> that day. So, how did you end up in Cokeville? I I married into Cokeville. So, when, when at what point did you guys meet? Was it after college? Before college? It or? was in the middle of college. I okay. came home, and I'd been teaching a Sunday school class, and wasn't really successful at it. And so I decided to go to the uh, parallel class to see how that teacher handled uh, the group. And it happened to be Sharon's brother. And I still remember 60 years later, the lesson he taught. So he was a good teacher. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's incredible. And then afterwards, I met his sisters. And they were excited because Sharon was a 30-year-old bachelor. Wow. And so you never forget a good message. <laughs> no. <laughs> and and so he invited me out on a blind date and they introduced us all evening as brother and sister Dayton because uh because of our ages and, and I had never seen him before. The, and the first thing he did, he was a VOAG teacher. And so he took me out to this this barn to look at one of his students projects and there was a the the man that owned the barn was quite a boisterous per- person and he said is this mrs dayton and and sharon started to stutter a little bit and because we'd known each other about five minutes and uh <laughs> he started to stutter and he says well, well, well not yet <laughs> and and so he knew you were going to be his. That, that was the beginning of our <laughs> courtship. So we, did, we didn't have time for a courtship because she was just out home for a short time for, for summer things. But she looked like a good deal, and she answered all of my tender requirements. <laughs> so I sent her a ring in the mail, and she accepted it. Really? You did. You sent her a ring in the mail. Where were you at then? Were you at, wow. Ames then? Was at Ames? You were in Ames then? I just put it on and went to class. Were you just grinning from ear to ear? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those things you do the next thing you do. So Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a story. That's amazing. So tell us, um, Sharon, a little bit more about Cokeville and what Cokeville means to you. Tell us your history with this town. I worked in a grocery store in Montpelier, and uh, a lot of the women from Colteville would come over there to shop, and they were all dressed, always dressed nicely, were all always just top people, and I was very impressed with that. I was impressed with the women and their deportment. Uh, 
Yeah. And, uh, and then you ended up, um, where did you end up working in Cokeville? Uh, I ended up teaching school. Okay. First, I taught sixth grade. Then I taught kindergarten. Then I taught first grade. Uh, let's see. In in, let's see. One of those years, I taught at Utah State for a year. Wow. And, uh, wow. And and uh, meanwhile, had three babies. So wow. I took back and forth to Utah State with me. Then. So how many years total did you teach? I, I, I can't even figure it out. I've, tr- I've tried to figure. A lot. S- some in the 30s. Some. Yeah. So um, very long wow. time. A long time. A long time. So have you two always lived here? We lived Pretty, on a couple of ranches. Yeah. Different ranches. Yeah. We've in quite much. humble circumstances. So one of the main reasons we wanted to talk to you guys was because of the story that came up at the elementary school. And this was 1986, you said? So what is my math? 30. 30, almost 36 years now? Yeah, that's a while ago. Yeah, and come to find out there's a movie that some of our audience may have already have watched. And it's called The Cokeville Miracle. Um, So... So do you want to just give us a little background on like what the the kind of lead up to what happened in the school? So Janelle, um, you actually worked in the school when this, when happened, this happened in 1986. The story you behind became it. one of the hostages. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. also had a sister that was teaching in the school too at the same time, and they were both taken hostages. Wow. Uh, with their classes. So Janelle, you and your sister-in-law were both hostages. Mm. Wow. And uh, it it was a really beautiful May day, uh, and school was about out. And we had a huge first grade. What, 24 children? (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) Pretty good size. That's pretty good size for Cokeville. It was big for Coteville, and so we had, yeah. they had split the class, so <clears throat> I had half of the students, and another teacher had half of the students. Oh, perfect. And we had decided to put them together uh, one afternoon so that they would get a, a little bit acquainted, because they would be together in second grade the next year. Oh. And so I was going to t- uh, teach them one day and one afternoon, and the other teacher was going to teach them. Uh, a half day. And so I was sitting in my classroom, uh, kind of getting ready for the end of school. You know how you do your end of school records. Everyone's getting antsy. Uh huh. (laughs) And so uh, I was all by myself and I looked out the window and I saw a white van parked outside the window, but it was a delivery area. So I didn't think too much about it. And I thought, I better go get my mail. And so I've got everything to deal with. So I went out of my classroom and went down the hall. And I saw a couple wheeling a grocery cart down the hall. And it was it had some uh, milk cartons in full of kind of a yellowish liquid. And I thought, well, they're just cleaning supply salesmen. 
but there was something different about it. And there was a little foreboding, and but I thought, uh, they've seen me, I might as well just continue on down the hall. And so by the time I got to the office, they had introduced themselves to the secretary. And I had heard of a group that was coming up from the South that were dissidents and were going to cause a little trouble. But Wyoming wasn't one of the states that they said that they were going to stop at. So I asked the man, uh, after the secretary introduced me to him, I asked him who he represented. And his name, his name was David Young. And David said, we represent ourselves. And then he showed me the bomb oh. that uh, was hooked to the shopping cart. And he said, if anyone molested him or you know, caused problems for him, he could just pull that pin and it would take down about half the school. So were these people, they weren't from around here locally or? He'd been a, a, an officer a police officer here, but had been dismissed. So did you recognize him when you no, saw him? No, I'd never seen him before. No. So, and, and. He was a police officer here for just a short time. When he applied for the job here, they says, well, you're not qualified, but you can go to the university and they'll train you in six months and you can go back and talk to us again. And he came back and he was hired or on a probationary system. Mm -hmm. And he didn't last very long. He only lasted for about uh, seven months, and they fired him for weaknesses in uh, performance. Mm -hmm. mm. And he had his wife with him. Uh, her name was Doris. But uh, while we were having this conversation, this young girl came in, and she was applying for a job. Oh, boy. She was applying for the kindergarten job for the next year. And so Doris took, uh, Cin her name was Cindy, Cindy, and she took Cindy and myself and put us in the conference room that the teachers usually met in and, and shut the door. And then they went off to do something. I'm not sure what. But uh, Cindy said uh, the window was open and... You know, there was a nice breeze, and it was just beautiful. And uh, Cindy said, let's go out the window. And he had sh shown me, David had shown me the bomb and how it worked. And if he got upset or anything, you know, he could detonate that bomb. How, did, so, how did you feel in that moment? Uh, maybe like it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. It's very that, surreal. Yeah. Uh, and, and so anyway... Um, I, I felt like we didn't need to do anything to upset him because he had, you know, the weapons. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, uh, anyway, Cindy and I stayed in that room until Doris came and got us, his wife. And uh, she said, follow me. So we went down the hall and uh, our custodian was coming uh the opposite direction, and and I motioned to him to get back, and uh, Doris said, "Hey, we'll have no, none of that." But he didn't he didn't continue on, and they didn't insist that he did because he was a great big man, and I think they didn't want 
him in the, uh, with us. So she took us down the hall. And uh, when we got to the end of the hall, the door opened from the outside. And this young, really pretty girl was just hysterical. She came flying through the door and she screamed at, at David, I can't believe you're going to go through with this. And who is this young, pretty girl? His daughter. Oh, oh wow. How old daughter. was she? Oh, teenager? Mm -hmm. she, and she was probably 19, 18 or 19. And uh, any... So did you, did you want to say something? So, um, so up to this point, did you have any idea like what they were trying to do? What his motives were? Yeah, they soon expressed uh, what they wanted. And what they wanted was a ransom of $2 million for each child. But he oh. didn't express that at this point. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, uh, David took the keys to that van that I'd seen outside the window and threw them to her and told her to get the heck out of there. But out in the van were two men handcuffed. David, uh, sometime before this happened, had contacted some old friends, I guess, and told him that he had a, a project that if they helped him with it, they'd be flying their own jets. And so uh, they came to Cokeville. He wouldn't tell them what the project was. And of course, when they found out what it was, they said, we won't know. They no didn't want any of part that. of it. Yeah. And so he handcuffed them to the, in the van. And so when Princess, Princess got in the van, those two men were in there and she drove down to the city hall. And of course they released the men and sent them on their way home. But uh, anyway. Uh, she let the people at city hall know what was going on. She did. So she actually told them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow, what a good daughter, mm -hmm. honestly. And so uh, anyway, the classes, uh, Doris started bringing the classes in. She went and got each one of the classes, and they thought maybe there was just a program in that classroom. But uh, I, I was one of the first ones in, in the classroom, and uh, David uh, started, I think he had a coat over this shopping cart and he pulled that aside and started unloading guns, rifles out and lining them up along the chalkboard, which is a really strange thing to see in a school. Very yeah. strange. And, and, uh, and at that point, I, I began to realize that maybe this was for real and, and I, I was very scared. It was like a you know, my bones went cold because uh, from the fear. So you, you went into shock pretty much at that point. Your body went into mm -hmm. shock. Yeah. And so anyway, he, he unloaded all these guns along the chalkboard. And then uh, he looked at me. And it's kind of interesting because we're told in the scriptures that we're all born with the light of Christ. And this shines through our eyes. Yeah. But... When I looked at his eyes, there was nobody home. His it was darkness. Light yeah. was extinguished. And uh, and we can see that too. Mm -hmm. We can see the light, but we can also see the darkness too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so anyway, he, he 
told me that he wanted me to go back and stand by the bathroom and make sure that everyone that went into the bathroom, instead of going out the door on the other side, because it was a bathroom that served two classrooms, that they came back in the, in the room. And so um, I, I went and stood by that bathroom, and I didn't move the whole time because I didn't, I didn't want to draw his attention at all. So anyway, they brought all the classes in, and a, a lot of the little kids started getting sick, and I think from the fumes of the gasoline in, the, in those bottles. So they started opening windows, so there was a pretty good airflow. And uh, So during this time, did the kids realize what was going on? No. They didn't. So they weren't no. in fear. They weren't scared. or Well, uh, um, and see, I, I was separated from my class. Okay. And one of the little children came up to me and they uh, said, "Teacher, are we going to be okay?" And I, uh, out of my mouth came, "We're okay right now." And and I've thought about that a lot. And that in life, that's all we can expect is to be okay right now. Yeah. And this right there, that right there reminds me of what just happened down in Texas, the shooting in the school. Well, and this was kind of the first incident like this, and, and I felt like they needed to be quiet about it so that they didn't give other people ideas. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So they gathered every single classroom in the yes. school into one room, basically. Mm -hmm. How many kids are we talking? Like There were about 154 uh, pers teachers and, and students. Children. The room was only about 30 feet by 30 feet with 155 people in it. Incredible. And, and so uh, uh, Doris didn't want them drinking a lot of, of water because then they'd have to go in the restroom and there'd be more commotion. Yeah. And Smart. So, so she, she, did, she didn't want them to, and some of the children were sick to their stomachs and so forth, but in, anyway, they uh, kind of settled the kids down with crayons and paper to, you know, draw and and so forth. And David didn't want these little people next next to him, mm -hmm. and so he uh, they created a magic square uh, that the kids couldn't come inside of with masking with tape. Masking with tape and. Uh, mm -hmm. And they the moved floor. the furniture so that uh, uh, there was a... You could sit on the floor. Uh -huh. There was a barricade on the other side of the restroom so that the kids couldn't go uh, on through there and so forth. But anyway, the, uh, as the day kind of dragged on, you know, we were wondering how long we were going to be there. And uh, some of the older kids, and these are kids that are raised in homes where they have family prayer in the morning and family prayer at night. And because mm -hmm. we're very dependent on correct our, yeah. mm -hmm, on our Father in Heaven. That's right. And, that's the LDS, uh, LDS faith is you, you do have your prayer during your day. Yeah. And, and so a lot of the sixth grade kids uh, knelt and took turns saying, prayers over in the corner where they weren't detected. 
uh, and then uh, our daughter was in seventh or eighth grade, and the high school kids got together and and prayed on several different occasions to when they found out what was happening. So you really relied on your faith during that Very moment. Very much so. Very much I so. I love that. So the daughter goes and tells City Hall, did people start to find out pretty quickly what was going on in the school? One of the things they had, uh, they had the principal as a messenger. And he was the messenger between City Hall and uh, the the room where the, the people were, were held. Yeah. And one of the things that they were told early on, that if, if anyone came to try to rescue the children or harm the perpetrators, they would start shooting the children. So because they had that uh, instruction, nobody uh, would anticipate going in and trying to rescue the kids. Right. So yeah. There's nothing anyone could do. So were Unless people they, gathering outside the school, though? Except for prey. Except for prey. <laughs> yeah. Were, were people starting to gather outside of the school, or did oh, they yes. keep them away? Or? Yes, people. Once they found out what was going yeah. on, and they found out very early on, because of this uh, young lady that went in and told them what was happening, and they started notifying neighboring towns, so we had ambulances coming in, fire trucks coming in, uh, fire uh, law people, and nobody could do anything for fear if they went in there, they'd start shooting the children. Yeah. 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 So after, after a while, um, David Young came back to go in the restroom, and this other teacher and I thought, maybe we can lighten him up with a little humor and he'll say, this was a bad idea. Let's just all go home. Yeah. <laughs> but he just looked at us like, you know, we're scum of the earth. <laughs> oh, man. But, so, anyway, so anyway, one of us said, you'll just die when you go in that bathroom because it had been built for um, a little girl that was had a little bit of dwarfism. Okay. And so the... Uh, it was built on a small scale. Right. Yeah. And the other teacher the other teacher said, yeah, the potty's only a foot tall. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was a large man. And he was a large man. <laughs> so so anyway, and he, he just looked at us like, you're not funny. Well, so, you try anything in a time of desperation, yes, I'm sure. Yes, we were desperate. <laughs> so it, anyway, he went in the bathroom, and uh, the secretary of the school was standing by me, and, and he had put the had hooked the bomb to his wife's wrist. And uh, I turned to the school secretary because she was standing right by me, and I said, uh, she wouldn't blow these children up. And the secretary says, don't be too sure. And I turned and looked at her just as she said, I've got a headache. And she detonated the bomb, <gasps> and I saw this big fireball hit the ceiling. and. Uh, of course, that was the clue for everyone to get out of there, the cue for everyone to get out of there. Wow. But one of the miracles was that about two weeks before, somebody, and it may have been I that made the comment, what, what if we were all in the same room and we had a fire 
And so immediately we took all the kids down to the lunchroom and showed them that if there's a fire in one room and we're all in one room, uh-huh. you get, get out every exit. And so, so you we taught them prior. Fun. We practiced that. Well, that is a God thing. That was because we had never done it before. We never did it afterwards. What and, a story. Yeah. And so, wow. uh, so anyway, when, that, when the bomb actually went off, David was in the bathroom and Doris, it just blew up in her face. And, uh, and everybody ran. We cleared the room in 45 seconds. Incredible. Out all the windows, all the doors, and just scattered. And what and, about David? And David was in the bathroom and heard the bomb go off. And he came out, and of course, Doris was on fire. Uh, and, and another little side note, uh, when they gathered us all up, there was a mother that came to pick up her little kindergarten child, and they wouldn't let her leave. And she had a baby out in the car. And she said, I've got a baby in the car. Please let me go get at least get that baby. And so she did. And she had, what, five or six children in that room. And so when the bomb went off and in, it flamed Doris, uh, this mother was still looking for her children in the room and so forth. And uh, Doris held out her hand, you know, help me. Oh. And the mother couldn't. Right. Because she had to, she had to find her children. And, yeah. And save them. And so uh, David uh, came out of the bathroom and saw Doris on fire and shot her, you know, a mercy. So she wasn't suffering. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then he went back in the bathroom and shot himself. But when I, uh, when the bomb went off, I, I went through the hallway and I can't figure a timetable for this. And there are things in your life, uh, time doesn't add up. Yeah. And so I went through the hallway and I was clearing the barricade that was made of desks and so forth so that the kids couldn't go out of the bathroom and home. I was clearing that and I moved back behind the wall and David came out of the bathroom and the music teacher was going through the hallway at that time. David had two guns in his hands. He had a 45 and a 22. And he shot the music teacher with the 45 and it jammed. <laughs> so he Thank shot you, him. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> yes. And then he shot him with the 22 and the bullet went through his uh, backbone over the top of his uh, shoulder blades. Shoulder, bl- well, spine. Oh, spine. Yeah. And lodged in the other shoulder blade. Wow. Oh, wow. And uh, a, a few days later, he dropped at your feet. And, and then he dropped at my feet. And then I thought he'd tripped. But I never did see David come up. I never did see him shoot him. And I was right there. 
Hmm. And and so anyway, he, uh, the music teacher fell and almost in one motion was up and out of the room. And uh, so I finished uh, getting the barricade out of that uh, there. And then I went back past the door where David was uh, to see if there were any children left in the room. And it was black. And, and the smoke was thick, like you could, black cotton, mm-hmm. like you could have pulled it. And there was just a glow on the floor. You know, wow. I was on fire. Wow. And so I went out that door and uh, into the other door to see if I could get in there. And uh, it was the same. The smoke was just black. And uh, I could see the glow on the floor. And then uh, about that time, a fireman came by and said, get out. So I left. But we had a teacher's aide. She helped me really a lot. She was just a wonderful person. But she figured that she'd lived her life. And so if there were children that needed to be saved and and put out the window, that she would do that. And so she just crawled around this floor until she determined that there were no children left in there. Wow. Before she left. But uh, the smoke... uh, a lot of the little children just were black yeah. from uh, inhaling that wow. smoke. Wow. And, uh, and then they ran down. We, I think we had a designated lawn that we would meet on if we ever had a, a problem. So were any of the children physically hurt? Uh, th- there were some, uh, some bad burns. Burns. And, and they, the, the, um, ambulances were there and the fire trucks and so forth just stuck them in and took them to, we have a hospital in Kemmer. One, did they take them to Evanston? Oh, no. no. And Montpelier uh-huh. and Star Valley. And uh, Do any of those um, children that were affected, do they live around here still? Not, not a whole lot of them. No. This bomb design was the same that uh, went off in Oklahoma City in a federal building there, blew off the side of the building, killed 300 people. Mm -hmm. So it was the same kind of design used like fertilizer or something, I think is what they... I I talked to the bomb inspector afterwards, and he says, I couldn't understand why they didn't have the explosion. The bomb design, they had uh, two levels with the materials on. The first had the gasoline container and then uh, things that would cause the flame. And then there was a second layer and down here were all the materials that would cause the explosion. And so all of those were supposed to go in the air at once and cause an explosion, which would knock the walls down and drop the ceiling on the kids and be the end of them all. But, uh, Inspecting that uh, later on, they found that the wires had been cut that controlled the second layer in the explosion. And so they just had the effect of the fire, which was bad enough. It was so hot that within uh, within a minute, it had uh, knocked a lot of cartridges on the ground that were there in boxes, and they were exploding and causing shrapnel to hit the walls all through there, 
And I just know one little girl that got one little piece of shrapnel, I mean, they get out so quick. That right there, when I think of this story, I hear the story, it's like God's angel army was all through that school protecting those children and and all of you that were unharmed. Like there was so much evil that came into that school that day, the darkness and the eyes and the evil, but yet God's angel armies swept in and... And and he knows a lot about the uh, reports of the angels. What, what what you know a lot about the reports okay. of the angels. Yeah. Okay, uh, before the bomb went off, while the children were still there, the children recorded that angels came down through the ceiling. Wow! And the room was full. One little boy says there was an angel for every every person that was in the room. This is incredible. I believe it. I've been studying all of this, and some this is true. Some saw angels, and some didn't. Uh -huh. But a number of them did uh, see angels. In fact, angels uh, talked with them personally before the bomb went, ever went off. And did you know that there's been studies that children actually see angels more than even adults do? Believe that. So there, I know of maybe six or seven cases where children had that experience, and the angels came talk to them and told them what was going to happen, or go over by the windows, gave them instructions, or told them they were loved, and they would be all right. And wow. So, uh, the, wow. The children, you know, it, it's interesting that the children saw angels, but uh, the adults didn't, didn't. So I guess the same thing can happen with us. We can have angels in our presence, and uh, not be aware of it. You're correct. We're not always aware of them. Sometimes we are aware of them. Sometimes we can have the gift to see them or feel them, but sometimes we're we're not able to. So but the children in in every case afterwards, they were looking in old family albums, and they says that was my angel. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and, well, and and then wow. Uh, Fairly recently, uh, one of the mothers of one of the, of the some of the children, you know how when we house clean we rearrange things, and she put out a picture, and uh, her son uh, was visiting, and he went past, and he said, "That was the man that saved me." It was a picture she hadn't had out. You just don't make this stuff up. <laughs> this is yeah. incredible. This is an incredible part of this story. Wow. So, so why do you think, Janelle, that not many of the children that were in this incident live around here in Cokesville? Do you think it's because of the trauma they went through? Uh, and, and some still feel that. Some okay. still feel it. Okay. But I, I, I feel like, uh, and some of them uh, feel like that we need to forget it. And I, I felt like that, that we needed to kind of go on. And then the scripture came to me that said, what the Lord does for us, he expects us to remember. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question is, you know, this traumatic things happened in the school. How do, how do you go about rebuilding from that? Like, how do you get the school back going? How do you get the town to get moving forward? Like, what was it like afterwards? People had a hard time afterwards. Yeah. Both the adults and the children. If they went into a public place, they'd always want to sit where they could observe 
and have an escape route. Or if they were putting gasoline in their truck, the smell of gasoline would be bring back a memory of that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, sure. Things like that. One of the interesting things that uh, happened in, in my case, we had a son that was a missionary serving in England. And two, two weeks before the event, we got a letter from him, and he, he says, uh, I've had uh, this terrible dream, and, and uh, I'm having a hard time sleeping. But in this dream, I saw smoke pouring out of the black smoke pouring out of the school windows and heard the screams of children. Oh, he got a prophetic vision. So does, does wow. heaven know ahead of time what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, God was giving him a—the Heavenly Father, God, was giving him a vision. Yeah. And it, we, we had a couple of teachers in our school that uh, were kind of non-believers. And uh, I, I was in the school uh, quite a while before this happened uh, on a Saturday preparing a talk for conference on the atonement. And one of the teachers came in and, and I said to, to him, and this was on a Saturday and it had never happened before and never happened afterwards. And I don't know how we both ended up in the school on Saturday, but uh, anyway, um, I said, well, what, what do you think about this? And uh, he says, oh, I'm waiting to see the burning bush. And then after the incident, I said, uh, well, well, did you see the burning bush? <laughs> Janelle. <laughs> and he says, he says, well, no, but he says, I don't know who saved us, but I sure like his style. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, we spoke before we started this podcast, your believers in the Latter-day Saints and Matt and I are non-denominational, but what it boils down to is faith. And that's what it boiled down to in that situation. And the school situation is faith. You had to turn to your faith in that situation. And do you think that's how you've kind of moved beyond the trauma of what happened that day was through your guys' faith? Very much so. Yeah. Well, I, I was so impressed by the bomb inspector because he, he says, I can't understand why that bomb didn't go off as designed and knock the wall down and bring the, the flaming building down on everybody and kill them all. And he says, and later on, as I got inspecting things, I found out that the wires down to the second layer of the bombs were mysteriously cut. Mm. Wow. And so the explosive, explosive part of it never happened. Isn't that something? This This other... It's like it all divinely was laid out the way it was, you know, you guys were protected. Very much so. But, but this, this other uh, teacher that uh, was kind of an unbeliever, he's a believer now, but uh, he was an un, uh, kind of an unbeliever. And, and uh, where I sat in my classroom, I could look to the, uh, across to the other classroom and you know how teachers put up their kids' artwork and so forth. And this teacher had put up papers on the wall and so forth. 
and the smoke had seeped up under the papers. And when they took the papers down, to me, it looked like a death's head with its wings spread out. And this other teacher that was kind of an, an unbeliever came in my classroom after the fact. And uh, I said, look, uh, that looks like a death's head. And he says, no, because that's where the Lord stood when he saved us. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What are you thinking over there, Matt? So <laughs> how long was it before you, the school opened back up? And We were back in, see, in Cokeville, you fall off the horse and you get back on. I love it. And That's this the way I live my a, life. <laughs> yeah. This happened on a Friday. We were back in school on Wednesday. Wow. Really? Wow. It was, uh, you know, the middle of May and school was about out. So we were just finishing up the year. And, and parents, parents were quite uh, conscientious about bringing their children into the room mm -hmm. and letting them kind of explore around and, you know, recall what they wow. talk about it. So I would say your community is full of really tough, strong um, faithful, loving people. And, but, and, and we recognize the need to make the effort to keep it that way. Yes. Yeah. You want to keep it, that cultivated here. Uh, because it doesn't happen automatically. Right. Yeah. I love it. Why can't our whole, our whole country be based off of that? <laughs> and, and maybe we need to really pray for our whole country. Oh, yeah. we do. We pray for our country and our leadership daily, don't we, Matt? All the time. Yeah. We, we pray that do, the do evil's revealed. We... I've uh, organized a group called the Cokeville Miracle Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we've uh, had an effort trying to get our national legislators to create a national monument here in Cokeville, remembering the event and teaching people about it. Yeah. And are you having any luck, Sharon, getting a hold to any getting a hold of anyone you know, to the devil's working against me. Uh three years ago I wrote those letters to our national representatives and senators and uh, also sent uh, books that had been published about the miracle. And I never get any response and I well, I thought those people are usually very responsive yeah. to uh, to their people in their state, whatever happened. But uh, I found out later that those uh, packages that I sent them were regarded as bomb threats, and they were destroyed. So oh, that was wow. several years ago, and I'm just uh, trying to do the same thing again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We would like to see that happen for you guys. That you guys need a national monument for what happened. But, but it, it, it has a few problems. Yeah. You know, like maintaining it so yeah. that it's nice. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to have people that to, almost that were involved to uh, keep it going. Yeah. The state wanted to have a permanent record of it, 
So they sent some interviewers to Cokeville and uh, publicly uh, recorded their each of their individuals' experiences. And so we have all of those records. And another thing that happened uh, through this organization that I, I created, Cokeville Miracle Foundation, there were three ladies in there that were impressed. They uh, couldn't let it go. They said, we want to create a book where people can tell their individual stories. And so they did. They created a book and uh, published it through a state publisher, about a thousand copies of it. And they had about 155 people that would told about their experiences. The nurses at the hospital, the ambulances drivers, the, uh, the lawmen, the bomb inspectors, the children, the parents. So it was just a, a great record by people voluntarily telling their story. What's the name of that book, Sharon? The Cokeville Miracle. And this one's Witness to, Witness to Miracles. Was it Witness to Miracles? Witness to Miracles. Uh-huh. And, and Amazon has it, but um, some of the copies were about $400 because oh, wow. it's out of print. Okay. Wow. There's uh, another fellow who was a great friend of mine. His name was Hart Wixom. And he was, uh, uh, he'd written about 15, 15 or 20 books. And, uh, but he wanted to bring his family to, to Cokeville to live and experience a small town living. They were from and, Salt uh, Lake. It wasn't until about two weeks afterwards that he started going around and interviewing families about their, their total experience and the, what the experience of the kids was. And he also wrote a book. It's now it's in, in his fifth edition. And uh, he's a, a, a great writer. He and his wife wrote in great detail. And so it's another book that uh, is available today. Okay. And do you know the name of that one, Sharon, for the audience? I have a copy of it. Let me show you. When Angels. Do we what? have one, I think, in the so, other room? You know the name of it, don't you? I uh, probably make it accurate. Maybe yeah. he'll, he'll grab the book. Yeah. Yeah. Look. Wow. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Well, you know, of course, when we first heard about this story, it was from a woman that didn't even live here. Um, She's from Washington. So you can tell that it's spilled over into other generations, right? Mm -hmm. They know the story. The they know all the background that of moved it. Here. Yeah. Um, it would be very interesting to get some type of memorial, something historical that could be put here because the story is just so powerful. Um, and we knew there was something about this town without knowing, which it, is interesting, right? That we felt that walking yeah. around. And the arms of it, like there's just so much to learn from it. Um, Beyond just being a tragedy, right? Like, you know, the rebirth of a town, you know, resurrecting from something tragic, but... Um, just the well, strength uh, of the faith that so, has... Okay. This, uh, this particular book is in its fifth edition. I This might have been the fourth or fifth. This was maybe the third or, third or fourth. 
The first one was just a regular, uh, regular printed book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, and it's called "When Angels Intervene to Save the Children," as we spoke of. And and this this couple right here were friends of ours, and they lived in Salt Lake, and they lived in a nice home, and they moved. They had what seven children. They moved up here in a trailer with no amenities. Yeah. And uh, Judine, the last time I visited with her before she died, said, I didn't know why we moved to Coltville. And then I found out. Because they, he had uh, written for the, Des- for the Salt Lake Tribune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, they were professional writers. Of course, it- there's a lot of national publicity. Uh, Right after it happened, mm-hmm. and most of uh, their writings, they they visited with families about two weeks after the event, and some of the families says, "Well, a lot of our experiences are are too sacred to to tell," but other people, families, were saying, "Yes, we'll uh, mm-hmm. this is what the world know." Yeah. Yes, I think it's important to tell the story um, because there's so much to take from the story. Um, there's just a story of redemption and restoration afterwards and just the strength of your faith as a community here, um, just coming together, right? You, you're almost bonded together in your faith and in the story. And they always say that, um, good comes from bad. And that's what I'm hearing from the story is this the good that's come out of this horrible story, the horrific story, just to see the Heavenly Father, God's, we call him God, God's presence in, in his hands in this whole story is just beautiful. It's I just kind so of didn't uh, expect, uh, finish some of my experiences, but uh, I was out on one of our ranches when I learned about it, and uh, I stopped at another ranch house, and two ladies there had just discovered through the telephone what was happening to the kids in school. So I came into town to our home here, and uh, I grabbed my rifle and grabbed ammunition. I'd been in the army and and uh, was an expert when it came to firearms. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I better go to the city hall before I try anything. And I went to the city hall, and there I found out what was happening, and that if any attempt was made to save the children, but uh, they would start shooting them. Wow. And uh, the day that that happened, <gasps> right after I'd gotten my guns and stuff, I went to the city hall and found out what was happening. And I went over there, and this was just seconds after the bomb had gone off, and I saw the black smoke pouring out of the windows and heard the screams of children for about five minutes, just like in the letter that I had received from my son. Yeah. So did your, amazing. did your mind take you back to that letter right away? Like immediately? Did you think about that letter? Well, I've thought of it a lot about that time. I, I don't know where it is yeah. today. We've tried to find it, but I don't have it. 
Wow. Well, two weeks before I keep saying wow, happened. but it's just such a wow story. It's just amazing. It's incredible. Well, the fellow that did the movie was a good friend of mine, and he uh, I organized a meeting for him to Cokeville. To, he wanted to talk to the Cokeville people about it and, and get their permission basically to tell a story and do the movie, and then he made the movie as a result of it. Were you guys a big part of um, directing it? He had uh, his own idea of of what he wanted to to do, so we we didn't have much to do with the movie. We we visited with him quite a bit, but we didn't. Yeah. This fellow was a great diarist, the the fellow that uh, caused all the problem. And they studied a lot of his diaries later after the event, and they came to the conclusion that uh, he believed that he could go into a new world and take these children with him and be their glorious leaders. That's one of the white reasons he came back to Cokeville. He became well acquainted with the community and the school system, and he thought the the children were bright and... uh, doing very well, and uh, if he was going to be a ruler, it would be a good place, good to to, to choose to rule over. Well, now that gets interesting. If he didn't collect his $2 million a child. Huh. Well, that didn't work out so well for him. (laughs) No. His plan, his his plan didn't work out so well. (laughs) We can only imagine where he resides these days. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well. It's been so great. It's been so great just getting to know you two and hearing your horrific, beautiful, beautiful story, your horrific but beautiful story together. Um, what an interesting life that you've led, both of you, your whole life, not just the school story, but your whole life. I would have never thought spending a few minutes walking around town would put us here in this living room today, but I'm so glad this happened. It's so cool to meet you guys. And just as a side note, you know, I look at this town and what it represents and I just see what America can and should be. This is, this is America right here in Cokesville. Wyoming, what I envision it to be and what it should be. So it's a good just to spend some time here. And we're just so honored to be here with you two tonight and to meet you. So that was divine in itself that we've gotten a chance to meet you both. Meeting (laughs) one of our the apostles of our church came to Cokeville. He came here on a regular basis because he married my sister, Mm -hmm. and uh, he prophesied. He says. Uh, one day, Cokeville will have three wards, and right now, with as much as such a small town, we have to drive thirty miles for a gallon of milk. <laughs> so we're looking forward to uh, people moving here mm-hmm. and moving here for a reason. Yeah, to for that to happen. Yeah. Well, it's a great little town, and it's set right in the mountains, so it's beautiful. Um, but. If you plan on residing in Cokesville in your future, anyone out there in the audience, you better have faith. (laughs) You better be tough, strong, 
And you better be ready to stand up for your neighbor. And yes, you better be able to serve them. your community. Yeah. <laughs> they only allow good hearted people in. <laughs> you know what? An interesting thing about Cokeville geologically is uh, there are two places in Wyoming where the coldest record has ever been recorded. Really? And one is at Border, which is just 10 miles from here, 55 below zero. And another is West Yellowstone. Wow. That's interesting fact. <laughs> this guy knows everything. He's full of facts. He knows he everything. He's a lot in 88 years. You like him. You like him. He's, he's, that's who you're going to be. <laughs> we may have to do a round two podcast with him just on history. The next trip through Cokesville. The next trip. Yes. Well, we should wrap it up for today. Yep. Because so. we got to get back on the road. We do. We have to get going. We have quite the journey still to Washington. We have a big John Deere tractor on the back of the, on the trailer and we're heading to. And then we go to Idaho and then North Dakota. And then who knows after that. Yes. All over the place. All right. So we'll see you next time. Well, one thing you're in good company. (laughs) Yes. We are in good company. Yes, we are. I'm amazing company. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you on the road.